you're listening to the Field Notes Podcast, where we descend from abstract ideas and disembodied theologies into the embodied, context-specific particulars of ministry on the ground. We hear from local leaders about struggle, breakthrough, doubt, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Seth Richardson. Like, how can I embody that without abandoning my identity and my own ethnicity? I don't want to be a disruptor or anything, but I recognize that some of this work, like without me even trying to be disruptive, is having closed a church, but coming out of it in a place where there's not like this crazy conflict and tons of like hurt and pain is something that I'm really thankful for. Today we hear from Kimberly Deckel, co-rector of All Souls Phoenix and soon-to-be executive pastor at Church of the Cross in Austin, Texas. We'll dive with Kimberly into an under-addressed but crucial conversation. How do you know when it's time to end a church plant? And how do you end well? Then how do you start over leading in a new place? We'll also hear Kimberly reflect on how the relationship between ethnic identity, gender, and denominational tradition fits together in her consciousness as a leader. Here's Kimberly. Yeah, so I am in Phoenix, Arizona, which I have been here about 15 and a half years. So this January would um, be 16 years. And in the time that I've been in Phoenix, it has changed a ton. I think like we've seen, you know, a lot of cities growing, but Phoenix and then Arizona itself just being a really young state. Um, When I moved here in the very beginning of 2006, nobody went to downtown Phoenix. And now, I mean, it's just like new apartment building after apartment building, just growing a ton and people are um, you know, flocking to the city and, and home prices are crazy. And um, a lot of marginalized communities are getting pushed out of the city, all of that. And so, um, so Phoenix is an interesting like city to be ministering in um, just because of the rapid growth that we've seen. It's one of those places where um, most people aren't from here. Um, it's like kind of a joke, you know, if you're like a native Arizonan or Phoenician, like, whoa, um, you're so unique. Um, and so, so that's a little bit just about like Phoenix itself. And then I um, just am recently coming out of a church plant um, that we planted and launched on March the 1st of 2020 um, and then just closed it. I don't know actually that we have an official closing date, but it was sort of a, a transition into um, closing that church. And it um, was an Anglican church, a part of churches for the sake of others. And then I also um, help lead an organization here called the Surge Network. And it's um, a network that works to put Jesus on display in our city through activating, reconciling, and equipping the local church. And Surge um, is not a specific denomination. It is interdenominational. And we have um, kind of at our core about 50 churches and then um, well over 100 churches that just kind of like interact with us in different ways. 
as we were discerning planting a church, um, first, so I co-pastored with a guy named Andrew. He's also a priest within the ACNA and C4SO. And Andrew um, was kind of the first one to begin just sort of like dreaming a bit about planting um, and through encouragement of mutual friends, like really specifically planting an Anglican church in downtown Phoenix, because that's not something that exists or existed at the time. And so he started doing just some of like the visioning and gathering like a small core group of people. And in that was really prayerful um, and wanted to co-lead with somebody. Um, Andrew is a white male and was really um, praying through um, co-leading with a person of color and just praying that God would bring a person like that to him. We laugh because he didn't imagine it being a woman also. So that like, God was like, ha ha, here you go. Um, and so we um, spent quite a bit of time, like a year and a half, two years, just developing a core group, praying together, doing life together, um, discerning what it was God was calling us to. Um, and we really desired to be um, a church that was, you know, liturgical, Anglican, a church that was present in the city and cared about issues that affect people in the city. And we we cared about and absolutely ministered to kind of the um, like young working folks who were moving into the city, but also really had a heart for um, immigrant community, really have a heart for people of color and just other marginalized people groups who have traditionally been in the city center. Um, and so a lot of these things are churches that exist that do like some of those things, but there aren't like Anglican churches in Phoenix who are sort of centering a lot of their ministry um, around that and around our call to follow Jesus specifically. And what we, we said, like, we follow Jesus in justice, mercy, and humility for the sake of others. Um, and so it's not like we're this like super unique thing. There are other churches doing good work and similar things, but in Phoenix really specifically, um, we felt like there was a need for that. And then we also felt um, really strongly that there was a need in Phoenix to have more churches that were led, um, that had women in leadership. There's very few here. Phoenix has a pretty interesting just kind of history and context, um, connected a lot of it to Phoenix Seminary um, and complementarianism. And so it felt, yes. <laughs> Uh, so it felt really important and scary, I think, like probably more for me than Andrew, um, but to just like respond to that, that call on my life, but also just for like the life of the church and the ministry that we are called to. Um, so, yeah, so those are that's kind of, you know, how we headed down the road and just how we were following um, what we felt called to do. And we moved relatively slowly, like I think kind of in the how we've long thought about church planting and we didn't, you know, we didn't have like ascending church and we didn't start with like a, a huge sum of money, things like that. It was pretty organic in a lot of ways, which allowed us to really um, just form a sweet sense of community with our people. And, and God um, brought us a lot of people who had a lot of church hurt, people who had maybe been raised in the church and experienced um, spiritual abuse, people who had been a part of the church, but then weren't sure if they like belonged anymore, people who'd been told that they weren't Christians. Um, and so people who, you know, were hurting and broken, like all of us. Um, and also though, with that, like people who weren't necessarily like, we want to plant a church, <laughs> um, but we're like, oh, we need a, a space to like, to worship Jesus, to follow him, um, and to just sort of examine our own faith. And so because of those factors, 
um, all of those things. We moved relatively slowly. Um, and you know, we weren't all that like numbers driven. We weren't, um, you know, there weren't like measurements and like, we need to hit this point, whatever. A lot of it was just like, um, following the lead of the spirit. And so we really clearly like kind of end of 2019, um, started feeling like, all right, like we're, we're getting, it's almost time. And so there, it felt significant to us to kind of, as we were discerning that to think through, you know, what are important like holidays in the liturgical calendar? When would be a time that would really be sweet to sort of officially launch this church? And we were like, Lent. <laughs> um, and, you know, so that meant March the 1st of 2020, which of course, like everybody else, we had no idea what was coming. And so we, um, you know, looking back, I think through the, the journey and then even still today felt really thankful that we were able to take the time that we took to just sort of like develop this community, build real like friendships and just a sense of connection because that allowed Andrew and I to like minister to our people through COVID. And it allowed um, us, you know, a lot of feeling of like people aren't falling through the cracks. Like we know who's kind of with us um, as opposed to if we had spent just a few months or six months sort of developing that core group and then launched, I think it would have felt much more unstable, but it was also challenging, um, not knowing what was coming, like kind of ramping up for this and then really quickly having to pivot. Cause we were definitely the type of church that was like, you would never live stream a service or record a service. And then it's like, Oh, we have to figure out how to do this. Notice how Kimberly talks about seeding a new work, a church plant, in her city, Phoenix. She's not talking about taking the city for Jesus. She doesn't have grand illusions that they would be doing something that has never been done before. Rather, she describes reckoning with who she is, with the traditions she inhabits, more on that later, with the relationships and networks knit together by the Spirit, and then asking how all of that could be cultivated as a gift a particular embodiment of good news in Phoenix. Kimberly's journey complexifies the question of what gets to count as successful. Her experience and her posture toward planting helps me reimagine what it means to be a faithful witness in a particular place. It helps me heal from the logic that always needs to win or to take new ground and establish my brand of church. Let's keep listening as Kimberly describes how they knew it was time to close the church plant. Yeah, so of course there's lots of different things. Um, thankfully, I think, um, I think that was a part of what allowed us to recognize that it was time. It wasn't like there was one little thing that maybe made us think it was time, um, but there were several things. And one of them initially was just a shift for Andrew and his family, thinking that they were going to have to relocate out of state. Um, and so that caused like a pause for us just in the sense of like, oh, what, like, what does this mean? And very much of like how we had conceptualized all souls was initially, at least very much with like Andrew and I sharing leadership. And then of course, like our, our parish being like really involved in the work that we were doing, um, but really a shared leadership model. And I pretty early on had articulated that at least in this part of my life, I didn't have like a vision or I feel a real call to be like solo pastoring a church. Um, so that, that caused just like a, you know, yeah, a moment of pause and consideration. Okay. Well, what could this mean for us? Um, and then I think that like almost simultaneously we hit that point where we're like, 
kind of late spring, early summer of 2021, where we were kind of starting to catch our breath a little bit from the last, you know, 16 months or whatever. Um, but also like in that realizing that we are pretty fatigued and that we were moving toward a place of really kind of operating like from a deficit. And it had felt like, I think for all of us in different ways, like we'd just been like treading water, just trying to stay above, you know, like barely making it. And then, you know, we come into this season of like vaccinations and people are getting vaccinated, but then like the Delta variant. So those, those two things just kind of allowing us to realize like, whoa, like we're really tired. And I think the thing that um, there's other factors too, but what, what we ended up realizing, and I think especially just like, I think we're in a moment, like the church, the big C church, specifically, I'd say like um, evangelicalism, and I, I would include Anglicanism in that, <laughs> um, where like we're just in a moment of reckoning, like in the United States specifically right now, the churches, and there's like so many things contributing to that. And one of the things that we're seeing and hearing more and more of is like is unhealthy leadership and churches and in ministries. And I think like, thank goodness. Like I, I think Andrew and I both feel so thankful when we reflect on this, like um, just that, like the protection that the Lord provided us in this journey. And then the people he surrounded us with to just mentor us and, and guide us through this season. Um, I think we were able to, to come to the decision to close and we were both in a relatively healthy place. Like sure, we were tired and there've been hard things, but I think that as we kind of looked to the future and then part of what we were thinking about with, with the church was we were kind of realizing we'd have to plan like a relaunch um, sort of once we moved out of COVID and that we would have to plan that as if Andrew and his family were not going to be here because it was really up in the air, like all through the summer. We didn't find out for sure what was happening with them until like early August. Um, and so, so realizing that if we were to move forward, it, there was like a real possibility that we would be moving forward and leading our people and ourselves into a place that wasn't healthy. Um, and so I think like, for both of us and for, I think a lot of us as, as humans, like the inclination was like, no, we're going to keep going. Like we have to make this work. If we don't, it's a failure, like, you know, all of those things. Right. Um, but realizing that like, especially for our people who um, had instilled a great amount of trust in us and had um, yeah, just really like championed us and the church and the vision, but who were people who were still really doing a lot of healing that to like, potentially lead them down that path just didn't feel wise. Um, so it was like incredibly humbling, you know, like, all right, like we're going to stop this. And so, and I think like, yeah, I mean, I think we could have continued and it would have been okay, I think, but I don't know, you know, but also like at what point would it have maybe become unhealthy? And, and there were a couple churches that we've known or been connected to recently that had been in similar situations and made the decision to move forward. And like with time, it had ended up just being, yeah, there, there was a lot more conflict and it was hard. And so, yeah, that's like the short version of the story. <laughs> I think one of the things that God has like kind of revealed to me as we, you know, so as we made the decision, it was like talking to everybody, like everybody who was you know, even kind of remotely connected and letting them know. And some people wanted further conversation. Some didn't, some people wanted help like transitioning into a new church. And one of the things I realized, like, 
as we reflected back and knew that like there was there was good fruit in this. It wasn't just like all for nothing. Is it for some people we ended up being like this, this like stepping stone or this place of like transition back into um, the church and just recognizing that like there are safe, healthy, imperfect churches, right? Um, It's not all maybe what they'd experienced in the past. And that feels like I feel super thankful for that. Listening to Kimberly has me wondering, we build into our models of church planting a strategy that assumes faithfulness can only mean longevity. This question brings to mind for me what Bilbo Baggins tells Gandalf after carrying the ring for 60 years. He says, I feel all thin, sort of stretched, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. That can't be right. I need a change or something. We may look good, be in control, and even be celebrated by others, but actually stretched out beyond what is good. There's often an implicit assumption that successful church plants are those that make it past a five-year window. So I'm wondering what theological framework funds assumptions like that? What is revealed about our ecclesiology in the lack of imagination for planting smaller impact communities? Although the term plant implies an agricultural metaphor, I think the business metaphor of franchising is probably more appropriate for describing what's at work here. Faithfulness is framed implicitly in terms of taking up space in a new territory for as long as possible. After we made the decision to to close All Souls and just as my husband and I and a few other um, close friends were just sort of discerning like the next season. A part of what we realized was that in order for me to serve as a priest and a pastor, we would have to be open to possibly relocating. And through um, really the kind of thing that like, as we look back on it is like, so God ordained, um, ended up accepting the position as an executive pastor at Church of the Cross in Austin. Um, And Church of the Cross is a church that I've been familiar with since like the spring of 2020. And then I've known Peter, who's the rector there since about the same time. And we've really come to appreciate the church, the work that they're doing, um, Peter's heart and just how he um, serves that community. And so um, when we made the decision, of course, it wasn't like a quick decision. It was a prayerful one. It was a really, really hard one. And um, kind of enmeshed in all of it is, is like, joy and excitement, but also quite a bit of grief. I'm just grieving like the closing of the church, leaving a place that's been home for so long. Um, But as we just kind of like look forward and and imagine what this new season will be like, um, one of the things that there's a few things that allowed us, I think, and prompted us to say yes. And like one of those being it's a church that we knew already, church that like I've been praying for ever since I first kind of became familiar with it. But also um, there are some differences and some similarities between Phoenix and Austin. And so in some ways it's like, all right, this is a big change, you know, Um, but there are some things that aren't going to feel quite so foreign. So it's not like we're moving to like a small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, It's not as if we're moving to, (laughs) I don't love cold weather. It's not like we're moving to Minnesota or something like that. Right. Um, So there's like cults, like in terms of like, the like climate, there are similarities, but even just sort of Austin is to Texas as Phoenix kind of is to Arizona in some ways. Um, And like these kind of younger growing cities, cities that have um, a large like 
Hispanic population and influence, um, states that are dealing with um, issues related to immigration. Those things all feel familiar and are things that I um, care, care about a lot um, and have you know, been a student of, right, just learning so much about, about those things. And so as we think about, um, you know, moving to Austin, there's those things that feel familiar, but at the same time, like, uh, I think I'm entering this new season, like Austin and Church of the Cross, and then even just relationships with other C4SO churches in Austin, um, thinking of it in a lot of ways is like, I'm a student, you know, there's a lot for me to learn. Um, and a lot of listening that will need to be done. Um, I'm coming from this context in Phoenix too, where I've been working with Surge, with all of these different churches and am used to kind of having this like city network of churches. Um, and so those things are, are going to feel different. And then Church of the Cross, um, you know, while it was a church that was planted and it's relatively young, it'll be six years old in November. Um, it is somewhat established. Um, especially compared to, you know, a church plant that launched right before COVID. Um, and so also that, right, like um, there's excitement about something that's a bit established, but also has space for like vision. Um, they're kind of entering in some ways into this next like season of the church and have some really um, beautiful ideas about what it will look like to be missional in Northeast Austin, which is where the church is. Um thinking about, you know, how does the church engage more around issues of justice and multi-ethnicity. Um, and so all those things feel exciting. And I think that there's ways that, um, you know, like I have something to offer in those conversations, but then also just a lot of like learning and getting to know the people um, and just discerning like what is my really specific call to that church, um, but also in the city. Kimberly's instinct for how to enter a new context even with a formal title and an existing community, is perhaps part of the antidote for our franchising tendencies. Her vision is to go in as a learner. It's so much easier for me to think of myself as a teacher, to think of the flow of influence as unilateral, me shaping them. But Kimberly articulates a new way, a healed way to be present in a place. If Jesus is doing the work, we can be curious, not controlling. Next, I ask him really to press into this idea further, specifically about what leadership means as one who is part of a received tradition, a tradition with a history of being exacting in its theology and liturgy and even assimilating. Here's Kimberly. I'm new-ish to the Anglican tradition. Um, I was raised in the Unitarian Church um, and then spent time um, in some non-denominational spaces, but also the Roman Catholic Church. But I've always, even like, even from having been raised in the Unitarian Church, like there is a liturgy, right? I mean, in a lot of churches, right? Like there's a liturgy, but I would say that in the Unitarian Church, there's one that's even more like distinct than maybe some of like the non-denominational spaces where there actually kind of is a bit of a liturgy or they're trying out like a neo-liturgical thing. Um, and so it's always been something that's felt really important to me. And I would say even just like the, the rhythms and like the movement, um, there's almost this almost, yeah, like there's just this, like this rhythm to, 
um, to a liturgical faith and to a liturgical service. And so that part um, has always felt really important to me. But I think that one of the things that I sometimes get stuck on and that I'm still figuring out a bit is like a lot of that within Anglicanism, for sure, most of it is really like rooted in whiteness um, and is rooted in like, you know, the Church of England, right? And then like colonialism and all of that. And so I think one of the things that feels exciting about it and that again, I'm still figuring out and I think there's an element of like, it's it's fun um, is to think through like, how can this, this faith, this tradition, like Christianity, but then really specifically Anglicanism, like how can um, I embody that without abandoning um, like my, identity and my own ethnicity. Cause I think a lot of times what we see in churches in general, but then I think we can see, you know, in our tradition is that the expectation, oh, in some ways, uh, yeah, it's like assimilation a bit, I think. Um, and the, and that there's like one really exact way to even, even in like, I don't know, like little things like tone or, um, like the speed with which someone like praise a prayer. I don't know. There's just things like that, that we don't necessarily, that can be hard to pinpoint, but that will feel different. And so I think I'm probably getting a little bit into one of your other questions too. Like one of the things that I think I've had to think really hard about that's simple, but not is what does it look like for me as a priest, um, within our tradition to be, um, like rooted in this tradition and rooted in, um, like it's ancient, like it's history, right? And that significance, but also be like who I am and who God created me to be. And so I think it's easy sometimes to think like, ooh, I don't sound like or move like or look like all of the white men. <laughs> um, and so how can I just allow myself to be like who God created me to be in his image, right? Um, and not like compare. And so it's, so that's like, it's like simple, but not sorta. Pay attention here to how Kimberly is describing how bodily movements characterize a tradition. It's not just words and ideas that constitute the shaping power of a tradition, but also the way those words are intoned. Things like cadence of speech and how our bodies take up space in a room or are ritualized to take up space in a room or move. Kimberly has both insider and outsider status in the Anglican tradition. She has institutional authority, but is also a latecomer and is a minority in a predominantly white male system. People with insider-outsider status help us see how there are things that feel different, but are often difficult to name. This is where really interesting work is done in a congregation. How do we hold space for accessing these things we feel but are difficult to name? I've seen God's disruptive and transformative work break forth by tending to questions like this. Next, Kimberly presses further into what it's like leading in the Anglican tradition as a woman of color. So I think that we can't separate those things. Oftentimes like the inclination, you know, is, is to separate them or, you know, sort of the, like our identity is rooted in Christ, which is like absolutely true. Totally. Right. Um, but like I, I alluded or mentioned earlier, I mean, we, you know, like we are created in his image, um, and we, you know, are called to be like this, this beautiful 
multi-ethnic church. I think that um, when we, like for so long in a lot of church spaces, men have been leading and that's what we're used to and sort of been, uh, yeah, accustomed to, but there's such a significance and importance in having both male and female like represented in um, leadership in our churches, um, in celebrating the Eucharist and and all of it, um, and recognizing that for some people, even people who um, celebrate and are supportive of women, that can still be a challenge. Like I think one of the things I've noticed is that people who I know love me and um, support the work that I'm doing are still just really used to men leading. And there's like this discomfort or this tension sometimes even still. Um, and I've always been thankful when people like lovingly have recognized that like, Hey, I thought I was ready for this and all on board. And I am, but I'm noticing like this discomfort or how I kind of have to adjust to it. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting off a little bit. So I think that we can't separate the two. And I, I know that like for myself personally, when I first felt a call to pastoral ministry, I was in high school, it's a long time ago, um, and had had some female representation in church leadership earlier in my life, but really from about the age of like 16 to 36 had not, didn't really have any. Um, and so even then had a hard time, like imagining it fully, um, really like pressing into that call because it was like, well, I don't like, who's, who's going to mentor me through this, or I don't see anybody else doing this. Um, and so, so that, so quite simple, like simply, but not the fact that I was like a woman and also a woman of color and didn't see that like represented around me was a huge barrier. Um, and, and one of the, and I think that it's important for men to sit under the leadership of women and to learn from women and to do life with women. Um, I think it's important for women like to have women leading and, you know, and see that. I think it's important for our children to see that um, and to just not, and to have exposure that is different than what most of us have seen, which has been white men, like really traditionally, like across the board, Anglicanism, like for sure, for sure. Um, and it's one of those things where I think when, for myself, when I reflect on it, like it's not, like I have no need or desire to be like um, this like trailblazer or like anything. Like I just want to do what I feel called to and what I felt called to for a long time. And, you know, didn't start getting to do till my late thirties. Um, and, you know, and believe it's a part of, yeah, like the ministry, like really specifically, um, that, yeah, that God's called me to. So I don't have, I don't want to be a disruptor or anything, but I recognize that some of this work, like without me even trying to be disruptive is, um, I just want like our churches to be healthy and to be like leadership, to be the full expression of how God has created people and not just like one really narrow example of that. And I think one of the things that I've had to just like come to terms with um, in general in the world as I move around, but, but really specifically within like Christianity, especially like more conservative Christianity um, is that like my very existence like is disruptive, you know, and it, part of me is just like, you know, like, I just want to like go hide in a corner and be like, no, 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 no. Um, but I think that when I've, once I've been able to like, just recognize and accept that there's, I've been able to move um, and feel more freedom 
Don't miss what Kimberly is saying about not wanting to be a disruptor. She's aiming for healthy ministry and for living out how God has equipped and called her. But this faithfulness causes disruption. It reveals oppressive, death-dealing structures that work against God's kingdom in Jesus, simply by virtue of inhabiting a positive vision for the fullness of life and spirit-empowered agency. Do you know what this feels like? To cause disruption simply by being in your own body and living out God's calling. If our congregations are going to heal from white, male-centric body supremacy and actually reflect Christ's body and the diversity of members where the marginalized get the most honor, we need to reckon with the disruptive power Kimberly embodies and the potential of that disruption to bring new life among us. The real place of tension um, that, that I'm feeling right now as it relates you know, really specifically to this, this move, um, is, is holding gratitude and excitement about the future. Um, and this, this like sweet church that I'll have the privilege of serving in and the people I'll get to serve alongside and just the parish and, um, just all of these like unknowns, these things that just feel really exciting and just like such a gift, um, with not just like closing a church, but also um, just like this grief around a couple of things, like recognizing that some of what we really um, wanted to press into and do in Phoenix is something I think we've, we've just kind of thought, man, maybe like maybe Phoenix just isn't quite ready. And that's not to say like we're revolutionaries and what we are doing, but um, just some of the stuff that we were wanting to do that didn't really feel all that like radical or anything like that. Um, just like facing some resistance, some things that just made it feel a little harder. I mean, church planting's hard anyway. And then there were just some additional things. I think we realized that some, some folks kind of like I talked about earlier, but a little different, like aren't quite ready, like even to be like led by a woman. Um, so some people who are like, can say that they are, but maybe aren't quite at that place. Um, and so there's like grief in that there's grief in just like, man, I love the city. Uh, six months ago, I was like this house, like I am dying in this house. We are never moving, like love this place, love these people. And so just, so yeah, like I even just have been in Austin a couple of weeks ago for a while, just sort of this feeling of like, man, like, why can't this exist in Phoenix, you know, in this place that's, that's been home for so long and that um, I've been able to do work for so long. But so, yeah, it's that tension of like really good, exciting things, but also just grieving that some of the things that um, I wanted to really, yeah, be faithful to in my calling, just can't do them like in this place. Somebody reminded me though, and I can't think of who it was that like, you know, like Jesus, Jesus traveled to do his ministry. He was all over the place. And so, um, you know, we're just moving into this, this new season that feels really unexpected, um, but also exciting and um, I'm thankful that we were able to say yes to it. So one of the things as we, so we have a nine-year-old daughter. And so of course, like this, like the closing of the church, which has been like this huge part of her life. Um, and then making the move is obviously a big deal for her too. And she's our only child. And so we've included her in all of these conversations. I mean, she didn't get to make the final decision, but she's been a part of it all. And so I think 
it's one of those things where as we've processed and talked with her, like I've learned a lot and a lot of it has been what I've needed too. And one of the things my husband said really early on that helped me a lot is our daughter's name is Keenan. And he said, um, like, I want Keenan to see us take risks, not knowing for sure if it's going to work out. He's like, I think it's important for her, like to see us do that. Um, and that was helpful for me, like a good reminder. I'm not always a big risk taker. Steve is a bigger risk taker than I am. Um, and so that like, there was like something grounding in that. And also the reminder that this is something we're doing like as a family. I moved here when I was 25. I knew one person, moved here by myself, didn't have a job, um, didn't have like a church or a sense of community. And what we're going to is something really great and beautiful, right? Like I get to do that with my family, with like a job and a church community. And so um, there's also just this real sense of like, um, I don't know, like finding like a groundedness in that. Um, yeah. And then I think just continuing to be like rooted in, in Jesus and his call on my life and just even like our life as a family um, has been really sweet. Um, and being able to come out of like having closed a church, but coming out of it in a place where there's not like this crazy conflict and tons of like hurt and pain is something that I'm really thankful for. Like it being a decision that feels healthy. And that was a decision that Andrew and I made together and included others in, um, I think is what's like allowing us to step into this next season. Um, you know, feeling relatively whole. <laughs> I mean, there's still, you know, a pandemic and all of these other things. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast brought to you by the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. And special thanks to Kimberly for sharing how the spirit is working in her context. The Field Notes podcast offers a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the kind of work we do at the Telos Lab. The lab partners with you in your ministry context, digs into the details and nuances of your context, and then helps you discern new transformative practices that help your community participate in what God is already doing among you. If you'd like to learn more, check out the link in the show notes. Peace.